All right, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13 and read through verse 18. Then we're going to drop down to chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Remember, this, we're trying to connect chapter 2 and 3 to chapter 4, which is the indicatives. The indicatives of the gospel. Indicatives, now that's a gram, grammatical term. It means statements of fact about what God has done. And we're going to look at those as the motivation for the imperatives, the things that God says that we now must do. That when we are called and we have difficult things that God calls us to, we go and get energy and motivation and power to do those things by remembering what God has done for us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the laws of, law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between us and God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Far off was Gentiles, those who were near were Jews. For through him... We both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access in one spirit to the Father. Now drop down to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we hear the imperatives again. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. Praise be to the Lord. This is his word. Well, you might recognize this passage. It's the same exact passage that Ben Weber read last week and that he preached from. And I am not preaching from it uh, again uh, because Ben did a poor job. He did a fabulous job. We had actually planned that we were going to do two weeks on this. But these things are so significant and so important, and the details are so important, that like well, it's kind of like painting. My, my wife um, painted our bathroom a couple weeks ago, and it, it's so important that our bathroom is a place of beauty and rest and delight that it required not one coat of paint, but two coats of paint. And that's what I would say about unity amongst God's believers. This is so important <laughs> that it requires not one week, but a second week. So we're going to, Ben got us working last week, and we're going to go over with a second coat of paint and do some trim work this morning. It says there at the end, we need to maintain unity. You maintain unity. Maintain. That's not a very sexy word, right? That's not a very revivalistic word. Maintenance. But you know, if if you, for you kids, you have to grow up, and one of the things that you have to learn about life is, as an adult, if you're going to be a mature adult, is you have to come to a place where you realize that 90% of life, of making life work, is maintenance. You, it's maintenance work. That if you don't go take, take your car in to get the oil changed and to do basic maintenance work, you might end up on the side of a highway somewhere. If, if you don't take care of your house or take care of your yard, it makes life very difficult. For all of you dads out there, if you don't maintain that beautiful, glorious dad bod, then you will have to buy new pants. And it is no fun to have to go buy new pants. 
Maturity in life is realizing that it's not about the sexy moments and the, the mountaintop experiences. So much of maturity in the Christian life and in adulthood is maintenance. Maintenance. Because that's where actually so much of the important work happens. And so if we're going to maintain unity, what I want to show you this morning is there's three things that need to happen. Some of these are going to be repeats of what, what Ben said, but we're also going to give it that second coat of paint and bring some nuance. Three things. First, we need eagerness. Second, we're going to need character. And third, we need access. Those are the three words. All right. Eagerness, character, and access. First, if we're going to maintain unity, we need an eagerness for unity. It needs to become vitally important in our life. The number one implication of the gospel, the first thing that Paul articulates as he has communicated the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is the first declaration he makes. The number one thing that Christians need to give focus to is peace amongst God's people, unity amongst God's people. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And the first worthy walk is to get eager, to get zealous, to get passionate about church unity and peace in your relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the number one issue. Apart from ensuring that the gospel is proclaimed here, the number one issue for the elders of King's Chapel, the issue that takes the vast, and I do mean the vast majority of our work and our labor as pastors is keeping the peace, is seeking unity amongst brothers and sisters, amongst marriages, amongst you all, amongst the staff, amongst you and the elders. This is essentially, this is the most significant amount of work that we do. Now notice, we don't create peace or unity. There is an objective oneness that we have that Ben showed you last week. That that old hostility, whether it be racial or ethnic or socioeconomic or political or, you know, whatever old hostility has been there relationally is now broken down and we are one in Christ Jesus. But we have been given the task and we are to do it zealously, which is to maintain that peace and that unity amongst us. Now, don't get this wrong. We think of maintenance as being, some, being less work, as being boring, but it is the work and it is the essential work of the church. If we do not do maintenance around our house, our house looks like an explosion has happened. In fact, there's one particular room, there's one particular room that is of most importance that if I don't clean this room every single week, the rest of our house looks terrible. It is the room that houses a five-year-old in our house. We established that room, we purchased it, we organized it in a beautiful way, it has a wonderful color scheme, but wouldn't you know, by, she is the greatest description of the law of entropy. In my house, the second law of thermodynamics, that things move from order to disorder. And if we do not maintain that room, it becomes the source of all messes everywhere else. Simply the things that reside under her bed is the spring of mess for the rest of the house. Polly pockets, doll clothes, reorganizing papers, bags of trash. I do this every single week. Otherwise, my house becomes utterly destroyed. And so this kind of work in God's church is essential as well in relational terms. Now let me ask you about the right application of the gospel of reconciliation in unity that we read in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. It says that, 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 that there is there a oneness and a unity among us. But what happens when we realize that there's not oneness and unity among us? 
How do we respond? When there are complaints and issues in the church, both locally and globally, where those who stand up and rise up and say, we need to be reconciled to one another, or one part of the church is not treating us well, or has not done so, is not caring for us in the way that we need to. You know this happened in Acts chapter 6. That the Greek widows came to the early church and said, the Hebrew widows are getting cared for by the church, but we are not. So what does the church do when one group of people or one person comes to you and rises up and says, we aren't getting along. We don't have the unity that we need. Is the response in that moment to simply say, well, God says we have unity, so we have it. Silence yourself. I heard the story of one particular man who became a believer in jail. He lived a difficult life, but he became a a Christian there, as actually many people do. And they come to that place at the end of themselves and see their need for the Lord. And he began to fellowship with other believers who had had become uh, Christians in jail. And they had this sweet fellowship amongst the jail, these Christians who were there. I mean, it was men from every race and every part of the socioeconomic scale. And yet when he left jail after his time and he began attending church, he realized that the church in this country is incredibly divided. And he was quite discouraged. Now you play the pastor. What do you say to him? Is, your, is the right response to say, well, Paul says we've already been reconciled, so we are, we are one, so don't worry about the lack of unity that we have as brothers and sisters. What's the, what's the actual applications of Ephesians 4, 2, and 3? Get going. Get excited. Get eager about seeking unity. Imagine if a married couple came to you and said, there's a breach in their lives. They live in separate bedrooms and they have separate lives. They run different schedules. They have different bank accounts. And they sat down with the pastor. And the pastor says, well, don't worry about the fights between you. You had those promises and you said, you said and God says you're now one flesh. So you're one flesh. So don't worry about the hostility that's between you. Is that the answer the Bible gives? No. The gospel is not a cheap shield to hide behind when we don't want to humble and weary ourselves out in the hard work of reconciliation and unity. But the gospel is to be the motivating force to get busy in this activity. To keep this unity must mean that we seek it visibly, not simply the spiritual unity we have in heaven with the Lord. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it needs to be made transparently evident amongst God's people. And we see Jesus is passionate for this, for this unity amongst God's people. In fact, in his last prayer, in John chapter 17, this beautiful prayer by Jesus, he says this, he, pra- he, pre- he prays that we would be one and, and the degree that he says that he longs that we would be one would be in the oneness like the, the Trinity is one. He says this in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be, what? One as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Do you see the importance and the passion of Jesus for church unity and peace? He, he says, how is the world going to believe that God the Father sent God the Son if they are unified? Now, that's a frightening thing. If they are unified... If they care and love for one another, what he is saying is this, is that the singular, most significant evangelical tool, evangelistic tool at our disposal is not the four spiritual laws, is not evangelism explosion, 
is not going door to door or walking on the campus. The most significant evangelistic tool that we have is peace and unity and a community amongst God's people. We teach little kids, we say this in the catechism, can you see God? And they say, no, but he always sees me. And so how does anyone outside of the church, how how do they see God? God says, amongst my body, amongst my people. And so because Jesus died to reconcile us, because the spirit, he has unified us, we are to get passionate about maintenance, eager and zealous for it. And so the maintenance of unity requires eagerness and zealousness, but it also requires something significant within our own hearts, and that's our character. It's going to require some character. And here we get down to the nitty-gritty of pursuing unity. Verse 2 shares with us an ascending line leading up to this call to be eager in pursuing unity. And it moves towards the goal of pursuing unity. And Paul gives essentially two pairs of active character qualities that we need if we're going to be pursuing and maintaining unity. And they are these. Here's the first pair. The first pair of character qualities that you need is humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Gentleness. It's also known as meekness in some translations. Gentleness is power under control. Gentleness is power under control in order to give life through your touch. It sounds to us, when we think of meekness or gentleness, as something fluffy and sentimental. But actually, gentleness requires incredible strength. It is tough and demands power. When I wrestle with my boys, if, I'm gonna, if we're going to have fun and actually enjoy the time together, I don't, we don't, I don't, we, that time is not fun if I essentially exert my power without control. If I essentially just throw the full weight of my body on them, what will happen? You will have squished children for lunch. Right? If, if I get mad in the midst of wrestling and I exert the full power of my right arm, what happens? Children get thrown against the wall. All right? But if we are to play well together, what has to happen? I have to take power and bring it under control. So you take the weight of me and, not, and hold it back in order to be able to play, in order to have a relationship with them in that moment. And that ability to use the strength of your touch, we see this often in words, in words, in actions. If you're able to shape your strength to fit the needs of another, then gentleness allows you to give life instead of destruction. The Bible says your tongue can destroy other people in the church, but also it means that your tongue can give great life. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 4 says this, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. That your words of encouragement, they give life to other people. The way you tenderly even say hard things gives life to other people. And gentleness is absolutely necessary for the life in the body of Christ. Gentleness is useful for all the hard things amongst God's people. For correcting and confronting and for controversy. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so if you have to, to go and confront somebody in sin, how do you do it? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And Proverbs 15, 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. In confronting a person and engaging with controversy and disagreement, we are to be kind and gentle in our responses. Gentle people are not those. Do not think of them as those who water down the truth. No. 
Gentleness does not mean passivity. It does not mean that you're not serious about sin. But in your confrontation and in seeking to bring the truth, you may have to say really hard words, but you will not say hard words harshly. You'll say them gently. And we, because often we think what is going to change somebody is our hard words, right? The force behind our words. If we, and in our fights, we think if they would just, if they would just understand my point, then they would totally under, they would come to my side and we would be at peace with one another. Well, let me ask you this. If you're married, how, how well has that worked for you? How, how well has that worked in your marital arguments? Gentleness, though, is others focused. It's shaping my words and my actions to fit the need in the moment, to be tender in a way that they can receive the difficult words. Now, you may begin to see why gentleness is often paired with humility, because if you're going to be gentle, you're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to be humble. And these three words, actually, we will see them, you will see them throughout the scriptures. They go as pairs. They go together. Because humility, humility is difficult to define, because we, we often actually know humility by the gentleness and the meekness it produces, Maybe the easiest way to understand what humility is is to speak of it in the negative. Humility is the absence of superiority in selfishness. It's the absence of superiority in selfishness. The opposite of, of humility is superiority. It's thinking of myself. It is a selfishness born of the fact that deep down, if we are really going to feel good about ourselves, then we have to believe that we are better than other people. That's where our insecurity comes from. That we have been separated from God, and so we're insecure people, and the only way to find some sort of foundation is to, to, to find security in my comparison with others. And it comes out constantly by keeping a tally of who has served the other more than the other, who has wronged the other more than the other, of constantly keeping an account of the slights. But the humble person stops constantly thinking about themselves and if they're, they're getting a fair shake in their life, in their marriage, in their relationship with their kids, with other people in the church. The humble person is of the other-centered. C.S. Lewis defined it this way. He said, humility is not thinking of yourself as less, but thinking of yourself less often. You begin to think about others more. The humble person gives themselves, pours themselves out for others, and unity requires the unselfing, the unselfing of ourselves and a focus on other people. But far from being a small person internally, the humble person who just gets run over. That's how we think of maybe a meek, gentle person who's humble. But a humble person at the core of their being is profoundly, profoundly secure and strong internally. They know who they are. And therefore, they don't have to build themselves up by tearing you down. Or by demanding their rights. Or demanding that they get their way because they know who they are deep down inside. I can pour myself out and use all that I am for someone else. I don't have to suck the life out of you so that you make much of me. This is humility. It requires great strength. That's one pair. Well, that would be enough if we were to have a gentle humility. That would go very far, but there's another one. And the other pair is this, patience and forbearance, or as it says there, bearing with one another. Now here, really briefly, I just want to note the honesty of the Bible. It says it right there. The things that you're going to need is patience and forbearance. And it assumes what? That you're going to have to be patient and forbearing of other people. Christians are, well, how should we put it? We are difficult. It's like snuggling with a porcupine in a snowstorm. We need each other to stay warm, but we're going to get cut in the midst of it. 
And this process, this difficulty of doing relationship with each other has led, there was an old ditty that went this way, to dwell with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory in heaven. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's, that's another story. There was a man, there's an, let's give you another old, old pastor joke. There was a man who lived on a deserted island. He was in a shipwreck, and he was the only one who survived and lived on the island for a number of years by himself. And he, when he was finally rescued, they discovered that he had, he had three huts. And so the rescuers asked him, what's the first hut for? And he said, well, that's my house. They said, well, what's the second hut for? And they said, that's my church. And they said, well, what's the third hut? And he said, that's the church I used to belong to. But they ticked me off. The Bible does not try to hide the difficulty of preserving unity and life together. We want to live under the illusion that somewhere out there is an awesome group of people, that there's that mythical church where they just do community perfectly and they always get along and everything will be great, but simply that's not reality, is it? I love, one of my favorite movies is As Good As It Gets. It's older now, but it's Helen Hunt and she's married, or she's, her boyfriend is Jack Nicholson. Can you imagine having Jack Nicholson as your boyfriend? But Jack Nicholson plays her the character of a boyfriend, and this character is OCD. He's always washing his hands in ritualistic ways. And what is worse, he's ornery, strange, and rude. And at one point, Helen Hunt's character speaks, says to her mother and says this, I just want a normal boyfriend. And her mother says, dear, everyone wants one of those, but there is no such thing. Well, the same thing could be said about the church. There are no normal churches. I just want to do community with normal people who aren't crazy in all the ways that drive me crazy. Is that too much to ask? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so because it is hard and because we are sinners and because we will cut each other, we need patience and forbearance. It says there, forbearance is the shorthand. The the longer term is bear with one another. And I love the frankness of this. Could have put it more crassly? You have to put up with each other. That's what it means. This is, there's, there's bearing up, which means you, there's the one way it's talked about other people's suffering. So you, you bear up under their burdens. But this is actually where the burden is them. Like they are the burden, the other person. Loving others will feel like a burden to you because it is a burden. It is hard. When you help someone with a burden, you make a choice to come alongside them at cost to yourself when you get close to them. It's like carrying a sofa If you come up alongside somebody who's trying to carry a sofa all by yourself, you're coming up and you're putting them yourself up under that sofa and bearing that burden with them. Except in this case, they're sitting, they're like, oh, cool, and they lay on the sofa while you carry it. Love is inconvenient. Love is burdensome. Bearing a burden, man, what does it look like? Well, it looks like being present with somebody who's always whining. And you're tired of hearing about their constant processing. And It's bearing with someone who has hurt you and forgiving them. It's doing the difficult thing of realizing maybe you're the person that other people are bearing with and asking for forgiveness. So we bear the burdens of one another. In particular, we bear the weight of the difficult parts of others. And you might say, well, how long? Right? The apostles came to Jesus and they said, how how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And Jesus goes, what? 70 times 70. In other words, a lot. And what's the other word? The other word is patient. This speaks to the length. Patience, it, is, it comes from the Greek word makrethrumia, which actually literally means long-fused. It means you're long-tempered or long-suffering. Patience is that long-suffering which makes continual allowance for the shortcomings of others. 
It is willing to endure wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. And it is willing to bear up for a very long time. And patience is required if we're going to minister to each other. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says this, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What? With what? With complete patience. Why? Because we change really slow. One sermon isn't going to cut it. One Bible study isn't going to cut it. So, yes, do we confront? Yeah, at times we confront. Do we admonish? Certainly. Do we even rebuke? Yes. But as we do these things, we do so with patience. Proverbs 14, verse 9 says this, A patient man has great understanding. Now, what what does a patient man understand? Well, I think a patient person is well acquainted with their own shortcomings and the slowness of their own ability to change. And because they're well acquainted with their own shortcomings with their sharp elbows, with the slowness of their sanctification process, they're willing to be patient with other people. So what I want you to see is the deep unity and real peace and not simply the absence of conflict or the kind of peace that they talk about in Jeremiah where the the false prophets are running around going, peace, peace, where there is no peace. No, but real oneness in relationship actually requires conflict. It requires it. And if, if the great travesty of the church is that when we realize that there is conflict in the church amongst our relationships, it's in that moment when we have an opportunity actually to get real, to actually become moved towards oneness, it's then that we most often cut and run. We have swallowed the lie that the best things in life should simply come naturally to us with ease and without effort. And if we continue under the delusion that emotional health and life requires that every relationship in our life not burden us, then you will find that you will have very few relationships and that the ones you do have are vacuous. Here's the tragedy. When we walk away at the very place when real depth can begin to happen, when we extend forgiveness to other people, when we have to, with tears, repent to other people, it is in that moment when things get hard that relationships actually grow. When there's a wrong committed, when there's gossip, when there's a real offense, and instead of going through the courageous and hard work of repentance and forgiveness, we cut our losses and we move on. We undercut the beauty and the power of the gospel in God's church. You can see this in marriage. As my wife and I were watching a show a couple years ago, I think it was the show Parenthood, in which a couple was considering divorce, and the wife was talking to her sister about, about this idea and she, she said she didn't want to separate her, their family. She didn't want to separate her kids from their father. And the sister's great wisdom, and this is the wisdom of the world, the sister's great wisdom was this. Well, you would not want your kids to be in a home where their parents don't love each other, would you? You see, this is the, be- the, the world's wisdom. This is as best they can give. It got hard, so give up. And you understand, our, our relationships, when we have that, that kind of value and that kind of principle, our relationships remain small. And they tell a small story where we just put up with each other until we can't do it anymore. But the Bible says no. The Bible says in those moments when there's real conflict amongst believers, when there is real hurt, real pain, real forgiveness that needs to be extended, that suddenly a grander and more beautiful story can be told by God's church. In, in your relationships. And so let me ask you this. What are you willing to bear up under to maintain the unity of God's people? What kind of work are you willing to do so that his people reflect his character? 
We bought Halloween costumes this week. About a month in advance. I guess Target had a 40% off sale. So my wife is thrilled that the whole month of October, other people are laughing about this. Apparently other people participated in the sale. She's thrilled that the whole month of October she's not fretting about what our kids are going to wear. And it reminded me of this. I remember Jerry Seinfeld in his uh, stand-up comedy act talked about when he first heard about Halloween. And he was so enthralled, he was like, wait a second. People are just giving out candy? And he's like, who's giving out candy? And, and his parents, everybody we know is giving out candy. He goes, what must I do to get the candy? I love candy so much. And they go, you have to wear this. And he goes, I can wear that. And so let me ask you this, because this is appropriate for the times. What are you willing to wear for unity? We have something better than candy. We get to reflect the love of Jesus. Third, we need access. We need access for unity. Ben gave you the first and thick layer of the gospel last week about how Jesus came to die to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another. It cuts through ethnic, political, relational divides. Jesus has broken down that wall. But once the wall is broken down, what is the next coat of pain of good news that God gives us? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. We go from chapter 4 now back to the gospel in chapter 2. It says this, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access. He, he breaks down the wall of hostility, not so you can be like, great, God's not angry at me anymore, but so that you can actually delight in the Lord and you can experience his delight in you. I want to connect the dots from the gospel gift of access as being the connection to growing and inner strength of humility. Because that's what I said, right? The key thing we need for those character qualities of gentleness and humility and patience and forbearance, if you bear up under a couch with somebody laying on it, you better get strong. And so what we need is strength of character. How do you get strong internally? Access to God is what makes you strong internally. The common denominator of gentleness, patience, and forbearance is strength. It's a sense of, of, of security. Whereas those who, are gen, who aren't gentle, who can't put up with anything or any offense, who are not patient, they are weak human beings. John Piper says it this way, and I think it's so profound. He says, impatient people are weak and therefore dependent on external supports, like schedules that go just right, and circumstances that support their fragile hearts. Their outbursts of oaths and threats and harsh criticisms of the culprits who cross their plans do not sound weak. They sound angry and powerful. But that noise is all a camouflage for weakness. Patience, though, demands tremendous inner strength. The strength of security, knowing who you are. Now think about this. What are the dogs that are most likely to bite you? Little ones or big ones? When you corner them, which ones are most likely? The little ones. Why? Because they are the ones who feel the most threatened by your approach. Big ones are gentle because they know they're strong. The key point I want to connect with us this morning is this. In order to be humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing, we need something that utterly removes all sense of superiority in us and yet somehow simultaneously receives us with such delight that we are secured and strengthened by our sense of inestimable value before God. What could, give you, what could both shatter your superiority and yet convince you that you are inestimably valuable to the Lord? This is what the gospel gives us. In the biblical account, God tells us he knows the worst parts of who you are. He knows all our flaws and all of our failures, but then it tells us that even as he looks directly at the worst part of your heart and your soul, in that moment, 
he reveals his love for us and his value for you. Thus, such an exposing removes all sense of superiority first, doesn't it? When you, become a, when you stand before a holy God, you suddenly feel small. When you stand before the cross, the cross of Jesus tells you that you are really that bad, that your sins deserve death, and it silences superiority. An old preacher from Chattanooga named Ben Hayden, maybe you listened to him on the radio growing up, he said this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All superiority is wiped away. The gospel tells us that we are utterly separate from God, that we are his enemy, and therefore we have no ground for pride, for superiority, or for anything in the way we view other people. And yet God has been unbelievably patient with us. You understand this? That when you're an impatient person, you're reflecting the fact that you are self-righteous, and you have not come to realize how patient God has been with you. But more than simply seeing that we have no reason for superiority, More than God having been simply patient with us, the gospel also tells us that we are loved down to the core of our being, down to the deep secret places, the places that we would not want anybody, any part of us exposed, and yet he loves us there. And when you're loved like that, when it has nothing to do with your superiority, but he loves you at the weakest and worst parts of you, that is security. If you didn't earn his love, then nothing is going to take it away. I didn't do anything to deserve this love, and therefore there is nothing I can do to lose his love. And that puts you in a place, puts you on solid ground of security in the presence of the Lord. This is what the gospel does for you. It makes you realize you're unbelievably valuable to him. And therefore you don't have to go around the world asking to be declared valuable by your spouse and by your children and by the people in your church. And always you need people to constantly laud you and put up with you and give in to your needs and your wants and your desires. The gospel tells us that we are fully, completely, and utterly accepted. And when you're accepted, you get access to him. We are innately secure, insecure because we didn't have access This is what the fall did in our sin. We are separated from God. And this is what orphans do, right? Orphans, they don't thrive. They don't thrive because they're insecure. You take a child away from his parents, and what will happen to that kid? Core insecurities will will arise. And so the way we recapture value and dignity and worth is not by comparing ourselves with other people. That's what we do in our sinful state. But finding our worth in God and what he declares over us. And now we have access to him. And therefore, in access, you get to go and spend time with him and experience him. That, that wall has broken down. And, but the wall of hostility is broken down, not simply so that you can know, that's great, he's not angry at me, but so you can actually experience his love. If my wife and I are in a fight, and she slammed the door, and she's behind the door, but then finally, after apologizing, and it's like, the, the door of hostility is finally opened. But in moving towards her, she remains aloof and distant. If I go, she, she doesn't hug. There is no kiss. But if she, is that, that's what's going on. She's un, un, unresponsive. What do I actually know? I know there may be the absence of war now, but I'm still on pins and needles, aren't I? I'm still experiencing insecurity in that relationship. But if that door opens, and it doesn't simply open and she's sitting in the corner, but if that door opens and there is an embrace and there is a kiss and she tells me she loves me and I experience her warmth for me and her gentleness towards me, then how do I feel in that relationship? I feel secure. And so access to God brings us into contact with what aspects of God's character? Wouldn't you know? His humility and his gentleness towards you. 
and his patience and his forbearance. Jesus, we did a whole series on this. Jesus was gentle. Jesus intentionally uses all his power and all of his being to touch in a life-giving way. Not unrest- he restrains himself in such a way that he can give us love in the way we can receive. He was humble. He was lowly, which means he was others-oriented. He connects himself with the lowly and the unimpressive like you and me. Philippians 2 said, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he laid it down to save you. Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament as the supreme burden bearer. And what he bears is your sins. We read it this morning in the passage in the assurance of pardon. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you've been healed. He took our nature. He took our sins. He took our wrath. He took you on himself. And Jesus' patience. Do you see the length of his patience? The length to which he is willing to be gentle? The length, the length with how long he is willing to get low to be near us and to put up with us, he is willing to do it for a long, long time. John Bunyan, the old Puritan writer, said this, Jesus loved his own to the very end. That's a quote from John 13. He loved him to the end. His heart for his own is not like an arrow shot quickly, but soon falling to the ground, or a runner quick out of the gate, but soon slowing and faltering. No, his heart is an avalanche, gathering momentum with time, a wildfire growing in intensity as it spreads. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued the cross because he was betrayed. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved as he was being forsaken. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And this is who you get when you experience, when you get access. You get to hear that voice. Now understand this, that gentleness and patience and humility and forbearance, the strength, that's going to take a lifelong development and growth. Of going to the Lord and realizing more and more about his gentleness for you and finding security there. But that lifelong growth is played out in the singular momentary days and hours. Let me just simply describe this and we'll close with this. Every morning, I've come to realize something. I desperately, desperately have to get up and spend time with the Lord. Or else, within the first 30 minutes of the waking day, I will want to kill one of my progeny. And by that I mean I am not gentle or patient or kind or forbearing Trying to get four children ready for school at 6.30 in the morning when two of them are screaming at you and a five-year-old has decided that she wants red, not blue, and you want to pull your hair out, I have to go spend time with the Lord. In other words, I have to sit at his feet and go, you have been patient with me. You are kind to me. I have to quiet and center my soul before 6.30. Because it is only as I do that, as I learn to enjoy and embrace his access, my access to him, and hear from him that I have the security to go, this kid's screaming at me, it's okay. What is it for you? Where do you need to take a breath and remember the access you have? Remember what God has done for you, his patience and his gentleness, and breathe it in, and then go breathe out humility and patience for other people. As we do that day in and day out, dwelling with him, you will become the kind of person who is profoundly strong. And that's what we need in God's church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, um, we li- it sounds good. This is nice. Uh, but Lord, man, it, 
when, when the rubber meets the road and someone hurts our feelings and we long to defend ourselves, this is so difficult. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would do, be doing the heavy lifting, the internal spiritual lifting of spending time with you, of dwelling with a God who is patient and gentle and kind, so that you might develop within us a fortitude to die to ourselves, to extend graciousness to other people. Lord, I pray that this would um, pervade the life of King's Chapel, that the stories and testimonies that we would tell would be the greatness and the goodness of what you have done in reconciling us to one another in the seasons of deep hurt. Would this be the stories we tell? Would it be a grand and beautiful story of reconciliation across all the various lines that we have formed? Would you do that in our midst? It's going to have to be done by your power, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.